0: This morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other side also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. You may be
1: seated. Well good morning again. We are in the Sermon on the Mount as probably most of you know and I've been joking with people this week saying man I'm so glad that we are beyond adultery and divorce and we get to focus on something really easy like loving your enemy. (laughs) Because in reality this is probably the hardest teaching that Jesus brings to us in his entire Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Don't retaliate. We're finishing up in the Sermon on the Mount and this, with this passage, what has come to be known as Jesus's six antitheses. So six times Jesus has said, you've heard this, but I say this. And as you've heard, if you've been here, Jesus isn't saying, you know, you've, you, the Old Testament says this, but the New Testament says this. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying the Bible says this, but I say this. He's simply saying, you've heard the law taught to you, interpreted to you in this way, but I want to come and tell you how it should be interpreted, how it should be applied, and specifically with our final two antitheses in the area of justice and retaliation. So all of us in this room, if you're a human, you have somewhere in you this deep desire for justice to be served. You know, I don't, I don't care if you don't like the country, if you don't care about the, the city, if you have no discernible ethical values about you, all right? The moment somebody wrongs you, we're going to see your sense of justice comes out. I don't care who you are. I don't care how sweet you look. And I would put my wife up as one of the sweetest among us. And I remember well, 14 years ago, when we were newly married, we were living in Orlando and we were driving down Anderson Street into, into downtown and somebody cut us off, you know. Angela had... Just arrived in the big city from Mississippi. Somebody cut us off, and I didn't do anything, but Sweetie felt this just sense of justice swell up inside of her, and so she decided she was going to take things into her own hands. She was gonna lean across the center console and honk my horn for me. I was like, what are you doing? And she said, You don't do that where I come from. And I said, Well, you don't do that where I come from, or you get shot. But she had this sense of justice that had to be served. And and I'm no exception here. I can't tell a story about my wife if I don't tell a story about myself. But I remember raising support right out of college to go onto the mission field. And as everybody who's raising support does, you're calling people, trying to make appointments, trying to talk to them. And so I called one of the pillars in my church, one of the pillars in the community. And I told him what I wanted. And by the way, lots of people said no, which is fine in very gracious ways, But this guy, as soon as I got just enough words out of my mouth for him to be able to understand what I was wanting, he started yelling at me, he cussed me out, and he hung up the phone. This pillar in my church. And so you better believe every Sunday after that, I was fighting everything in my soul to not just want to stand up and yell out, this guy is a fraud. (laughs) Because I had been wrong. My ego, my pride had had been bruised. And I wanted retaliation, I wanted justice, I wanted vengeance. When we're personally wronged, we want retaliation, we want vengeance, we want justice. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is not to pursue retaliation, but to love your enemy instead, which is a very tall order, And so what I want to do this morning, I want to look at this passage, and I want to look at two very specific things. I want to look at the idol behind retaliation, why it is that we want retaliation, and then I want to look at the power of Christ's love. And if you look at your bulletin, you're like, well, this doesn't say the power of Christ's love, it says the power of love. Well, all the pastoral interns said, Jim, that is the fluffiest, most generic second title, you could, that sounds like a Hallmark movie, The Power of Love. So I added The Power of Christ's Love, and it does more appropriately um, get to what I do want to say. So, the idol behind retaliation and the power of Christ's love. The idol of retaliation. The idol behind our sense of a need for retaliation at its core, I think, is the desire for control. The desire to be in control. And there are two lies that we're believing if we're going to embrace this idol of control. The first lie is that we're more important than somebody else. We're more important than the person wronging us. And the second lie that we believe is that if we don't deliver justice, no one will. Those are the lies behind this idol of control. And I think this is exactly what the Pharisees were experiencing when Jesus was talking to them. In our passage, Jesus begins by saying, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And as I've said, obviously what's going on is they're misunderstanding some part of the Old Testament. They're twisting it, either to make them feel good about themselves or in some cases to allow them to do things that they want to do. And this is no different. They're manipulating a law from Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24 says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So, I mean, I remember the first time I read this, I was thinking, well, maybe the Pharisees aren't that far off. (laughs) That certainly does sound like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the way that they're twisting it, they're interpreting that for themselves, that they have the ability to administer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if you read that law in its context, you see that's exactly what Jesus is trying to prevent. That's exactly what Moses was trying to prevent. They wanted to prevent these like Hatfield and McCoy type blood feuds. They wanted to prevent people from taking justice into their own hands. So what we're reading is a law for the authorities. This is how the authorities are supposed to interact with people to prevent us from taking justice into our own hands. So what does Jesus say? Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with him. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus is giving us four types of offenses and I don't think he, it's an all-encompassing four. I, I just think these four adequately communicate the spectrum of ways that we might feel wronged, that our egos and our pride might feel bruised. So let's walk to, through these four very briefly. Slapping, suing, conscripting, and begging. These are Jesus's four examples. So first, slapping. You know, I was thinking about this this week, and I think I probably speak for every man in this room when I say, I would rather be like knocked out cold than open hand slapped. (laughs) You know, there's something about being slapped that it doesn't just bruise your face. It bruises your ego. It bruises your pride. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, when your pride and your ego are bruised in that way, give them the other cheek too. And then secondly, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak also. Here's where it's really helpful to know what a, what a tunic and a cloak are. <laughs> so a tunic in, in Roman times would have been like a shirt or even a suit, a light outer garment that most people had a number of. You at least had a few of these. It isn't something you wore every day and they were, they were a little bit less expensive than say a cloak. A cloak would be more like our coat, something maybe you only have one of, you use all the time and it's more expensive. And so Jesus is saying, if someone sues you for your tunic, the thing that's less expensive, the thing that you have more of, you, sh- you should give him that and also your cloak. The thing that you have less of, the thing is more valuable and the thing that you want to part with less. And thirdly, conscripting. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. And it's easy to forget that Jesus is talking to Israelites Who are occupied by Roman by Roman forces, and so it wasn't unusual for Roman forces if they needed help to conscript somebody and say, "Hey, for the next mile, you need to come with us and you need to help us." And you better believe this would have gotten to the core of their sense of ethnicity and nationalism. That would have bruised their ego to say, "Stop! You stop what you're doing. Help us!" Are these occupying forces? This actually is kind of what happened when the Romans conscripted Simeon of Cyrene to help carry Jesus' cross when he was too weak to be able to carry it up to his place of execution. And Jesus is saying, if they ask you to, to walk one mile, you go two. And then fourthly, lastly, if someone begs from you, you give it to them. Maybe you don't think this person deserves the money Maybe you don't trust them. Maybe you don't like them. Maybe you just don't want them to prosper. Jesus is saying all those are issues of your own ego. Give him the money that he's asking for. So what is Jesus saying? Throughout this whole sermon and especially here, he's trying to get us away from technicalities, feeling better about ourselves if we can check this box and do this. And he's speaking to very dark hearts, dark hearts among the Pharisees and dark hearts here in this room. All of us in some way have dark hearts and he wants us to hear loud and clear, it's okay if your ego is bruised. It's okay if your pride is harmed. It's okay if you get cut off in traffic. It's okay if you're unappreciated at work. It's okay if people don't like you at school. It's okay if you're misunderstood in your homes. Jesus is saying, it's okay, don't retaliate. Bring those losses, those wounds to me. Jesus is the one who wants to receive these wounds and ultimately Jesus is the one who is going to serve any kind of vengeance that needs to be served. Now historically, Christians have gone to one of two uh, inappropriate extremes here with this text. The first extreme is to say that we should never take any kind of action to defend ourselves. That'd be one extreme. You know, if somebody's abusing you, just turn the other cheek. You know, If it's only you who stand in between safety and harm for yourself or somebody else, turn the other cheek. Now, no scholar that I respect and read this week, and by the way, I I only read scholars I respect this week. So every scholar that I read this week, none of them had this view. None of them took it to this extreme. No one that I think we should listen to is saying that we need to turn the other cheek in every single scenario. We as Christians are not called to be doormats. That's not what this this thing is saying. Um, I would also go so far as to say that this text is not; uh, it isn't teaching the most extreme form of pacifism. All right, I think there's some legitimate kinds of pacifism that you could you could hold on to, but it's not teaching the most extreme forms that would say, you know, you the authorities can't come out and deliver justice. I can't fight in a war because there's no there's no place for any kind of any kind of defense in any kind of way, because what's going on here is that Jesus is talking to Pharisees who are wanting to take the law into their own hands, and in doing so, they aren't recognizing that God has given us a law. He's given us authority, and largely it's their job to enforce it. And we're thankful that there are men and women who serve in our police force and our armies and air force and all the different places that protect us. It's it's God's grace that we have these forms of protection. What Jesus is addressing is the individual who, at the end of the day, the main thing that he or she, the main way that they have been harmed has to do with their own heart and their own pride and their own ego. And you can see how Paul says the same thing. In the beginning of Romans 12, or the middle of Romans 12, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, go so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So Paul is saying, in a way, turn the other cheek, live peaceably. And then immediately after that, in Romans 13, what is Paul saying? Pray for your government, pray for your authorities because that's what they are here to do. Our authorities are here for our good, whether we voted for them or not, whether we like them or not, because we are deeply grateful for all the grace that God brings into our society because we have a government and not chaos. So Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek (laughs) by allowing the authorities to do what they're called to do, Turn the cheek when your pride is the main thing that's, in, that's at stake. Turn the cheek when vengeance and retaliation are at the heart of what we want to do. But he is not saying turn the cheek when we are the only thing standing in between safety and harm. So that's one extreme. And, and I think that the Pharisees here, they wanted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to satisfy their own sense of pride and vengeance And the way that they interpreted Leviticus 24, I think it shows that they did not have a high value for the government that God had given them or the God who had given them the government. That's the first extreme saying that we can never do anything. We turn the cheek in every single scenario. But the other extreme that we need to protect ourselves from is not seeing the weight of what it is that Jesus is telling us to do. This is a really heavy teaching. He really is communicating something that we need to hear. He's asking a lot of us. He's asking us to put our pride and our egos aside. He wants us, instead of a heart of personal vengeance and justice to have hearts of mercy, hearts of forgiveness, and hearts of peace. That's what Jesus is saying. And I don't know of a culture that has ever been more naturally opposed to this kind of teaching than ours. You know, all of us, we have idols in our hearts, we have idols in our cultures, and we need to understand the culture that we live in to be able to understand more clearly what it is that Jesus is saying to us. Because we live in the most radically individualistic and rights-oriented society that has ever existed in the history of the earth. And believe me, I'm thankful for a lot of these things, I'm thankful that we have rights, but we have to understand how this radical individualism and this radical rights orientation affects the way that we view everyone around us and the, the way that we interpret all the, the scenarios that unfold in our lives you can see this in the billboards, you know, all over. You drive, if you just drive I-4 and 436, you know, you see billboards all over the place say things like, are you injured? Get justice, you know, or you deserve the perfect wedding, you know, and then like a mile past that, you see that it says, you need a divorce? Come to me. I mean, everything that we say going back, you know, 15 years ago, it was your way right away. You know our, our billboards reinforce this thing that we are an individual and we have rights, and that affects our ability to turn the other cheek because we feel like we deserve something. We see it in our yards. You know, most it's a rarity among the history of the human race that you would have a culture that would invest more in their you know, outside of farmers say, but more in their backyards than their front yards. But we invest in our backyards because we want to hang out in a place where somebody's not going to walk up and we're going to have to hang out and talk with somebody we want to talk with. We want to do what we want to do with the people we want to do it. So we invest in our backyard, we put up fences, and we're happy. And the result, when we really don't understand how our radical individualism and our radical Rights orientation affects us. The result is going to be a measure of bitterness and resentment and pride when we don't get what we want, when we don't get what we think we deserve. And you know, the result of holding on to bitterness and pride and vengeance is isolation. Isolation and loneliness. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Because every bit of research that we have access to tells us that United States of America is the loneliest culture that has ever existed in the history of the world. There there are articles out there that talk about how we're lonelier than Eskimos. I mean, that's lonely. And you can even see generationally, boomers are not nearly as lonely as millennials. The younger you get, the more lonely you are. So we can see this trend, this loneliness in our society increasing and speeding up. And we have no expectation that it's going to reverse its course anytime soon. You can look to the Cigna Loneliness Index. All right, that's a real thing. Um, There's a loneliness index that a lot of well-respected people would direct you to. The Cigna Loneliness Index says one half of all Americans sometimes or always feel lonely. One quarter of Americans rarely or never feel as though there are people who really understand them. Only one half of Americans have meaningful in-person social interactions and 43% of Americans would not say that they have meaningful relationships and they feel isolated. We live in a lonely society because our society says it's about us and that pushes us into isolation and away from the life-giving relationships that Jesus Christ has designed us to experience. I was at Publix this week, and I was having a public sub made, and there was this really kind Polish woman who was making the sub, and I was kind of just talking to her. She'd been here for 14 years. She was a little older than me, and I asked her, you know, how has your experience been in the United States? And without hesitation, she said, horrible. I was like, I'm sorry, tell me about this. Why has it been so horrible? She said, well, everybody in Poland, they told me, come to the United States and you'll find money. And they were right, I found money, but I'm as lonely as I've ever been. She said, you people, you don't know each other. You don't even know your neighbors. This is a lonely country and I wanna go home. And please hear me, I'm thankful for so much in our culture, but we have to see ways that our culture is pushing us away from the life that Jesus Christ wants us to have. So no one I'm aware of argues the fact that something about the U.S., it promotes isolation. And I'm saying it has to do with this idol of control. We embrace this idol of control. We live in this radically rights-oriented society, this radically individualistic society. We don't get what we want. We become bitter. We become frustrated, and we push away from relationships if they are the least bit difficult in our life. So how do we change this? How do we change this? The first step to changing this is simply to see it, to understand it and to know that we were made for more. I was listening to a podcast uh, probably about a month and a half back and this podcast was comparing our culture to Epcot. I don't know. So I didn't realize this, but do you know that what Epcot was originally designed to be Epcot was originally designed to be not just the crown jewel of Disney, but the crown jewel of the world. Epcot was originally designed to be a city, a city where people live, they work, they play, a city that has the the highest wages, the best technology, that all the nations come together, the best schools, the highest standard of living. Epcot was supposed to be literally the best place, the happiest place on earth. And then Walt Disney died. And the executives said, yeah, there's no way we can do that. <laughs> and so now the Epcot we have is a shell of what it was supposed to be. And most of us don't even realize it. Most of us just think, yeah, that's, that's what Epcot's supposed to be. And we can do the same thing in our lives, not realizing that this is not the way this world was intended to be. But unlike Epcot, this world will be Restored. Jesus is coming to build a new kingdom. A new kingdom where mercy reigns and peace reigns and forgiveness reigns. And when our hearts are just naturally conformed in that way, the result is we are going to be drawn into perfect and life-giving community. Not this isolation and loneliness that our culture breeds through our individualism, our rights, and our bitterness and our pride. So how? How do we get there? That's the second part. That's the power of Christ's love. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. All right, once again, the Pharisees are manipulating an Old Testament law. And in this case, I would say they're more butchering than manipulating But so they knew they had to love their neighbor, but then they started to ask, well, who exactly is our neighbor? And so they defined their neighbor as the person who was an Israelite and acting the way that they thought they should act. So if you can see how it comes, love your neighbor, Israelites who are acting the way that we think they should act, hate your enemy, everyone else. But look at what Leviticus 19 says. When a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the, that the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and saying, "If you're, you're basically only saying you're gonna do right to people who are like you and act the way that you want them to. And if that's how you're gonna act, how are you different than everybody else on this earth? <laughs> I mean, the tax collectors do that. The Gentiles do that. But Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, I expect more. In my kingdom, there's a higher ethic. There's a higher call. And in verse 48, I think we see the key to pursuing that higher call. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I don't think that this verse is literally saying we can or should expect to be perfect in this life. That's not what this verse is saying, but it is saying that our goal is to strive to reflect and emulate the perfect love, the perfect mercy, and the perfect peace of God through our lives. That's what this is saying. And for anybody in this room who might struggle every now and then with wanting to retaliate or pursue vengeance for a bruised ego, I wanna give us four steps that I think are very biblical to processing that in a way that is not only, not only biblical, but will bring us more in line with the kingdom that we're called into and the perfect God that we, that we love, serve, and follow. So first, if we have been wronged, we need to first know and admit that we are not the center of this universe, that we are not more important Than other people because we will not be able to adequately process that wrong until we can remind ourselves we're not the most important thing and when we do that God becomes larger in our hearts we become smaller in our minds and we're more willing to forgive somebody so that's the first step acknowledging we're not the center of the universe second we need to know that God cares deeply about our suffering. He knows about our suffering and he cares about our suffering. And this is why the author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He understands us. He gets us. He gets us so much that he would come to this earth to give up his life in the form of Jesus Christ so that two things could happen, so that justice could fully be served. For those of us who have wronged God and rebelled God by that wrath going to Jesus Christ on the cross, the man who never deserved any of it, and injustice being fully served, peace is fully made. Nowhere do we see an example of an enemy loving of someone loving his enemy than Jesus Christ on the cross. If there's anybody who understands our being wronged, our suffering, our longings, it's Jesus Christ. So we admit that we're not the center of the universe. Secondly, we know that He cares about our suffering. And third, and this is important, we acknowledge that it's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn the ways that we are wronged, the times that our egos and our pride are our, our pride is bruised. You know that there's this idea out there that. That in Christianity, you just have to always be happy. You have to perpetually be smiling. We need to be like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. Just no matter what's going on, we get a smile. We're going to force the smile. And that's not Christianity. Jesus wants us to mourn. Paul mourned. Jesus mourned. He wants us to mourn our losses. But he wants us to do it in the right way. Instead of mourning through retaliation, he wants us to bring our mournings to him and let him minister to us. And let him conform and soften our hearts so that we look more and more like the perfect God we serve. And then lastly, once you've mourned your loss, and I would say this is the hardest piece, give your offender what your offender does not deserve. And this is going to look differently for everybody. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that we're going to just have this forced smile and act like nothing ever happened, but Every time we're offended, there's something that our offender does not deserve that we can give them. And in doing so, we're walking down the path to making our hearts whole. This is the ethic of the kingdom. This is how Jesus wants to live because retaliation is poison. Retaliation is a prison that we put ourselves in. It isolates us. But forgiveness, it softens our hearts It creates peace and draws us into the life-giving relationships we need if we're going to flourish as humans on this earth. There's an author I really like named Alan Hirsch. He has influenced a lot of the way that I think about a lot of things. And he has this great quote. He says, the Christian worldview can be summarized in three words. Jesus is Lord. Lord. Those three words shape everything that we do, everything that we think, and at the end of the day, everything that we feel. It causes us to want to serve instead of be be served. It causes us to want to love instead of be angry, and it causes us to seek forgiveness and peace instead of retaliation. Every time any trouble comes on us, if we can simply think Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, it will change our entire worldview and every way that we interact in this fallen world Until Jesus comes back and makes it whole. And as you may be able to see, this is how all this comes together. And I'll finish here. As we pursue Jesus, he creates a heart in us that draws us together. So we pursue this vertical relationship and then all of our horizontal relationships that begin to get better, we're drawn closer and we flourish. That's the design of the Christian life. That's what knowing Jesus is Lord does, and it's totally counterculture to everything that America will probably tell you, but I want you to hear this. It's not only good for us, because that's mostly what I've communicated at this point. It's also good for everybody who does not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So this week, I got to read a manuscript of a message that Tim Keller gave back in October uh, in Krakow, Poland. How about that? Two Polish references in one sermon. He was in Krakow, Poland, and in the message he was making the point that we we see Christianity flourishing. It's booming in unprecedented rates all over the world. And we, we may not feel that in the West, but in the South, in the East, never before has Christianity flourished the way that it is now. And he said all secular sociologists, anthropologists, historians they would all say they're basically five marks five marks that have contributed to the global rise of christianity going all the way back to the roman times and he says two marks really please the liberals <laughs> two marks really please the conservatives and one mark is hard for all of us and he, so he says the two marks that please the liberals is that christianity has always been multi-ethnic and it has always been radically committed to the poor and the marginalized those are, those are the two marks that please the liberal side of our society. But on the conservative side, he would say Christianity has always been against abortion and infanti, infanticide, Inf- infant side, infanticide, sorry, killing babies. We've been radically against that. And we've also had a revolutionary ethic of sex. But the fifth mark that has caused Christianity to flourish And boom, all over the world, it's challenging for all of us, he says, is our non retaliatory nature and the fact that we are committed to forgiveness. This is what has been so attractive about Christianity. This is what has caused it to bloom and to flourish. So it's not just good for our own hearts and our own souls, it's good for all of those that we interact with on a daily basis. Vengeance belongs to God. God is going to do what God will do at the end of the day. And if we're here this morning, I'm guessing you're here because you, most of you, you believe that there is a vengeance, that it was rightly directed to you and that vengeance was taken on by Jesus Christ on the cross. And we come here today because we want to worship that Jesus. We want to celebrate that Jesus and we want everyone to know That that Jesus is Lord, that this kingdom is coming and all the things that we feel, all the hurts and the losses that we feel in our society, it's not the way that things are made to be. And this is why Sunday is so important because when we come together and we worship this Jesus who showed us grace by taking on the vengeance of God, this is where we get the fuel to carry out our own mission, Monday through Saturday. This is where our minds are refocused, our hearts are reoriented, and we are given the power and the grace to be able to share this love with the people we care about and even the people we despise Monday through Saturday. Let's pray. God, how we thank you that we who deserve great vengeance and wrath, receive mercy and peace. And I pray for those among us who believe this, that this would cause us to be willing to offer peace and grace in a supernatural way as we are hurt, as we are wronged. And I know all of us are. Some of us in this room feel this more acutely than others but all of us experienced it. And I pray that you would do a work in our hearts through your spirit that would help us to be able to process our grief, that would be able to help us suppress our pride and our ego, to be able to bring it to you and to be able to be made whole with grace. We ask this in Jesus' perfect name, amen.